Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Amen. Brothers and sisters, please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 6 this evening. Again, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 6. Give your attention now to the reading of God's holy word. Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with, uh, with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Marriage is honorable among all, and, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Brothers and sisters, thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's go to him once again in, in prayer. Oh, Father, how we do pray even as there are there are these exhortations, these various things that we are to do. How we do pray that you would uh, work in our hearts, holiness, that brotherly love might continue here at New Covenant. We do pray that you would knit us together, Lord, one with another. And, uh, Lord, that we would be characterized by love uh, for, uh, for those within the congregation. May it be, O oh Lord, that we would uh, truly strive to obey these exhortations, that we would see that it is necessary for us, that it is necessary for the congregation and even for our spiritual well-being and our perseverance in grace. We do ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you're familiar with our catechism, the shorter catechism, you know that the third question is, what do the scriptures principally teach? And this question becomes sort of the, the outline for the entire catechism. And the answer is, the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Now, now the rest of the catechism is just an explication of those two things. Uh, what, what we are to believe about God and then what duty God requires of man. And very often what you find in the scriptures, particularly in the New Testament, is that uh, the, the, the letters in particular are broken down with these kind of divisions where there will be theology that is spoken about. There are things that we are to believe and there are things that we are to do. And here in Hebrews chapter 13, we have uh, really the most in-depth discussion uh, by the author to the Hebrews about what we are to do in this life, how we are to live a, in a way that is godly, how practically we are to live in light of everything that he has said uh, to this point. Now, uh, the sum of everything that we are to, to do uh, is said even in our catechism and seen in the scriptures as well, uh, very clearly, is that we are to love others. You, you remember that the Lord Jesus Christ says that this is the law and the prophets, that you are to treat others as you would like to be treated. And we, we know as well that when he was asked about the, the greatest commandment, it is, it is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then secondly, to love our neighbor as ourselves. These are the two great commandments upon which everything else hang, hangs. The entire law and the prophets can be summed up by 
in terms of that section, the, the, the part of scripture where it speaks about our duty before God can be summed up as loving God and loving other people. Now, that I know is very basic. I know that you know that you hear that all the time. We are to love God. We are to love other people. Uh, but an important question to ask further, though, brothers and sisters, is this. What does it actually look like for us to love others? Because very often, it can be the case that we may think that we're doing a good job. We're, in general, being kind to others. We're loving others. But then we find in the scriptures that when, it looks, when, when the scriptures teach us, you know, this is what love looks like, there are very often, in those instances, times where we find ourselves to have fallen short and we realize that there is actually there's the obligation to love goes beyond uh, what perhaps we thought before and so it's important then as we think about the particular exhortations in the scriptures as it deals with how we are to relate to one another that all of them are explanations that build upon the one great exhortation to love our neighbor to to love others to treat others as we as we would like to be treated and the same is true here, what does it actually look like to love our brothers and sisters? Well, there's a few things that we have that the, that the author to the Hebrew says. We are to let brotherly love continue. That's sort of the thesis uh, of, of, from which everything else flows. We are to be hospitable in verse 2. We are to remember the persecuted, verse 3. We are to uh, honor marriage, verse 4. And we are to conduct ourselves without covetousness, verses 5 and 6. All of those things are ways in which we work out the command to love others. And our progress in loving others needs to be measured against these sorts of exhortations in the scriptures. Uh, now, with regard to the, the, the context of chapter 13, so, so this is what we're going to be looking at this, this evening. We're going to be looking at um, the way in which we are to love others, what, what it actually looks like. Now, you'll notice if you've read the book of Hebrews, as I'm sure we, we, we all have, you'll remember with regard to the book of Hebrews that there, it seems like there's a pretty, pretty strong division between the end of chapter 12 and the end of chapter 13, such that a number of commentators actually think that chapter 13 really is not related to what's preceded it. That there's, it seems like the author's talking about things you know, like perseverance, giving warnings, exhortations, and that's characterized the entire letter, all, all chapters 1 through 12, all of it. And then now the author seems to be changing to speaking very practically about just here's how you're supposed to live. And so there's this, this idea that you know, there's, not, there's not a connection between these two things. But brothers and sisters, that's actually not the case. Um, the author has been setting up a connection between the very practical ways in which we live and the good of the church. He's been setting that up for the entire letter, but particularly in chapter 12, it's been emphasized quite strongly. So you remember that in chapter 12, there were statements about not allowing things like a root of bitterness to spring up in your midst. So the idea there is that there's an obligation to uh, live at peace with all, seek the holiness of that which no one will see the Lord, uh, address other people. If there's sins, you are to be reconciled to one another. And the, the connection that the author was drawing in, in chapter 12 is this, was if you don't do this well, this will lead to sins within the congregation, which will eventually lead to people falling away. Such that then the pursuit of holiness is good, not just for you, but for the sake of the entire church. And the implication is, is that the same thing is true in chapter 13. We are to live in a way that is godly because our living in a way that's godly and holy before the Lord is a way in which God strengthens even other Christians particularly those within the congregation that we've all bound together as one with, 
such that then we all can grow in, in, the, in grace and all persevere and reach the goal on the last day. So we've, we've noted how all throughout the book of Hebrews there have been these exhortations that see to it that not one of you fails to reach the goal. The idea is that, that you are to care about other people and their faith. And if that's the case, then what you must do then is show love to other people in service of them. And so in very many ways then, chapter 13, they are the final concluding exhortation that the author is going to give, the final instructions. But it is built upon the foundation of everything that's been said so far. Everything is, is to be related to this theme of persevering for the church as a whole. And godliness, living before God in a, in a way that is holy, is one of the ways in which we can encourage uh, others to continue in the faith as well. There's even a more formal connection as we see that uh, chapter 12 itself ends with, uh, with this, this, this exhortation to serve God in a way that's acceptable with reverence and godly fear. Now that has first and foremost to do with the way in which we worship God, so the idea being the first four commandments. But, but clearly there's always a relationship in the scriptures between that and the last six that is to say, the way in which we love God is always to work itself out in the way in which we love other people as well. And so the fact then that chapter 12 ends with this exhortation to serve God with reverence and fear, uh, then it's, it's fitting then that chapter 13 would begin with showing how that works itself out in the way in which we treat uh, other people. And so all this is to say that everything is related. This is the capstone and this is uh, practically the benefit that the author to the Hebrews wants to see in the people he's addressing is this, that there be, as a result of everything he said, that there will be brotherly love within the church, there will be hospitality within the church, that all, all these things will be true, that there will be suffering with those who are persecuted in the church, marriage will be held in honor, and that there will be no covetousness in the church. All those things are built upon everything he said uh, to this point. Now, because this is uh, basically just a, a list of exhortations with uh, various things attached to them, we're going to look at this passage just taking each exhortation uh, on its own. So there, there will be actually be uh, five points this, this evening. So we'll look at um, the command for brotherly love in verse 1, hospitality, verse 2, uh, remembering prisoners or those who are persecuted, verse 3, marriage and sexual purity, verse 4, and then uh, greed in verses 5 and 6. And we'll just, we'll take them one at a time. Uh, so, uh, as I mentioned, clearly verse 1 is to be the the, the sort of thesis statement. It's the 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 uh, broadest of the exhortations, everything sort of falls under verse 1. Uh, everything is sort of working out what it looks like to, to let brotherly love continue. What does it look like? It looks like all the other things uh, he's going to say. And that's the, the, the very first verse. It's a very short verse. Let brotherly love continue. Now, one of the things that uh, uh, one commentator has pointed out is that um, he says this. He says, it is important to appreciate that this was something new. That the idea of brotherly love was something that was not normal. Um, so today we can sort of think that that kind of thinking is normal. And indeed, it, it, it somewhat is normal, but the reason is because of the, basically the, the leavening influence of Christianity in, in the West. That the idea of, of loving others as a brother or sister, that was, that's something that's just, um, even those who are not believers understand, even those who are opposed to Christianity still understand that it's a, it's a generally a good thing that we show love to others, even though they're distorting the idea of love very often and all those things, yet they still recognize that there's, there's something to be, that's something honorable to, to, to shoot for that sort of thing. But this was in fact something that is new, uh, that was new. It goes beyond even the command to love others generally because uh, what the author is saying here is that you are to 
Uh, love other people as if they were members of your own family. And that's the thing that's new, uh, that those within the church, the, the, the kind of love that you are to have for them is brotherly love, love such that you recognize a, a mutual relationship. And that's the thing that goes beyond what, in, what was seen in the ancient world. There, is, there, there could be a sense in which you need to respect others or whatever, but, but there is not the idea that there would be brotherly love uh, with, uh, with others. Now, particularly, the main thing that the author is emphasizing here, as we can see from the context of the entire letter, is love within the church. So that's, that's the idea, that brotherly love, particularly, is love within the church. So the, the point that, that, that ought, needs to be recognized in light of this exhortation is that when a person is a member of a church, we are knit together in one family. As the Apostle Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, we, are, we, we are members of the same body of the body of Christ. Being united to the head means that we are all united to one another. Uh, you think of also the way in which Paul in a number of different places will, will describe the church as the household of faith. The household, meaning that there's, that there's a family and we are all a part of this family. And we, uh, we are to relate to one another recognizing that reality. The obligation of family goes beyond mere love. The, the obligation, therefore, goes beyond even the, the obligation that you have towards unbelievers. Uh, you are to treat unbelievers with respect and with love in that sense, always putting before them uh, the, the, the gospel and uh, showing kindness. But, the, but the, the obligation of love does not rise to the same level. It doesn't rise to the level of treating them as those who are members of your own family, letting brotherly love continue. Because... The reason for this is because this is a fruit of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. So if, if we are united to the Lord Jesus Christ, and one of the things that the Scriptures teach is that we're adopted into the family of God, as it, as it says, and therefore we have a right to call God our Father, we also have a right to call the Lord Jesus Christ our elder brother. As the Scriptures uh, speak, He is to be the firstborn born among many brethren. Now, if the Lord Jesus Christ is our elder brother, then that means then that everyone else who is united to the Lord Jesus Christ, also has the Lord Jesus Christ as their elder brother. If everyone has God as their father within the church, and everyone has Jesus as their elder brother within the church, then that means that everyone in the church are brothers and sisters one of another. And this is, this is a, a, family, uh, a, a family unity that, that does not apply to those who are outside of the church. Those who are outside of the church do not have God as their father in the same way. There's a, there's a broad sense in which that may be true, but it's not the primary way in which Scripture describes it, and it's, and it's positively not true in that sense. Uh, and also, those who are outside of the church do not have Jesus Christ as their elder brother. They've not been adopted into the household of God. They are not made co-heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, one of the things that is necessary then is to recognize that that is, in fact, the reality. And if that is the reality, then there is, there is a real kind of love that is unique that must be shown to all Christians, and, and especially those who are in the same congregation. There ought to be a, a love that you have for the members of this church that goes beyond uh, any acquaintance or relationship you have with unbelievers in this life. Uh, that is the thing that the author is speaking to. And the reason is because this is the thing that enables the church to be encouraged so as to persevere when things get difficult, that we all lean on one another and we all understand when one suffers, we all suffer and we all labor together for the sake of the faith of all. Uh, that is what is required. Now, as I mentioned, this is different from, uh, from the way others see things. 
uh, one of the things that uh, happened in the 19th century was uh, liberalism, uh, theological liberalism began to take hold uh, of uh, really the, the world uh, to the great dismay of uh, every believing Christian. Um, and uh, uh, liberalism formally held to three principles, and those were the universal fatherhood of God, the universal brotherhood of man, and the infinite value of the soul. And so with liberalism then, there was this, this complete erasure of, this, of the distinction between the need to love Christians versus loving those who are outside the faith because the thing that, was, that they were seeking to affirm is that everyone is God as their father and everyone is a brother one with another. Now, uh, the, the, the problem is, is, as I mentioned, this does not distinguish the family of God from the rest of the world, which the scriptures very firmly do. And so what we need to recognize is that though there is a sense in which God is the father of all, in the sense of him, him, he, him being the creator of all, that predominantly the way the scriptures describe God's fatherhood is with the believer. And what that means then is that there is, contrary to the, to the teachings of liberalism, there is a special love that you are to reserve for all of those who are truly members of the family of God. And that is to be evident in the way that you live your life. So the, the, the baseline obligation is this the, 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 the summary of this foundation is this you are to love other Christians as your brothers and your sisters in Christ. Now, secondly, the second thing that's said in verse 2, the first really specific instruction of how brotherly love is to be worked out is in uh, hospitality. Uh, now, uh, it, my understanding of most translations is, is that the word hospitality is, in fact, uh, used. It's not, it's not actually used in uh, the version that I was reading from. Uh, but regardless, verse 2 is, cl is clearly speaking about hospitality. So the, the idea is uh, uh, do not forget to entertain strangers. It could also be translated uh, do not overlook hospitality. Do not overlook hospitality. For by so doing, so the idea is by uh, having others in their homes, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Now, uh, the author is not just speaking about general things in terms of, you know, you, know, you, may, you may be showing hospitality to somebody and then it could be an angel. Uh, he actually has specific uh, examples of the, in the Old Testament in mind. He is, he's thinking about Genesis chapter 18 and chapter 19 with Abraham. You remember the story? Uh, God is promising to uh, Abraham, that there will be a son who will be born to him. Isaac, that will come just in a couple chapters later. And, uh, and when God comes, comes to Abraham, he comes with two other angels. There are, there are three men, as, as far as Abraham can see. And you'll remember the way that, that Moses records Abraham's response. He sees these three men coming. They, they appear just to be men to him. But he, he calls them lords. He asks them to turn aside. He sets before them uh, a meal. He, he opens up his home, he, he you know, kills the fatted calf, he tells Sarah to start baking cakes. He's quite hospitable with them. He, he says, I'll wash your feet, I'll give you refreshment, stay a little bit, let me refresh you. And what he did not realize was, was that he was actually entertaining angels and even a God who had appeared to him in the form of a man. And we, we see this because uh, uh, we know in fact that two of them were angels because two of them then leave one remains and Abraham is having a conversation with God. The two who leave then are the angels that went to Sodom. And they went to see whether or not all the, the things that were happening there were, that all the, the outcry against the city was as bad as everyone was saying. And you remember then that even Lot shows his godliness by also entertaining angels. So he looks and he sees there appear to be just two men. He realizes how dangerous it is to be in Sodom at night. And he says, 
my lords, come and stay with me. Do not, do not stay in this, in this uh, open square. And he, he brings them into his home. He refreshes them. He tries to defend them against the, the, the mob uh, of, of the city. The point is, is that both of them were characterized by showing hospitality. It was the normal practice of their lives, such that then when they ended up having people that were you know, more important without them even realizing it, uh, they, they were already ready to, to show honor to, to such people. They, they, Abraham and Lot, uh, entertained even angels without even being aware of it. And the point then, the point of this uh, story, and, and particularly in terms of the way in which the author of the Hebrews is applying it, what he's saying is that if this is the normal, if this has happened in, uh, in the Old Testament, though the likelihood of you entertaining an angel is basically zero, the point is, is that the story of the entertaining angels without being aware of it provides the foundation for all Christians acting in a way that mirrors the godly faith of Abraham and Lot on this issue. We, we, we are to remember the significance of hospitality, that those who are godly, some of them have even entertained angels without being aware of it. And therefore, we ourselves, that, that example in the Old Testament is to provide a basis for us to say that we ourselves ought to take hospitality very seriously. We, ought to, we have to take seriously the, the command in the scriptures to have others in our homes because there was a great blessing for Abraham and Lot to do so. And the point is that there is a similar blessing that is promised then in general for Christians who have others within their home. Now, uh, brothers and sisters, uh, I am very aware as, um, as you know, being in this, the context of the Bay Area that there are particular challenges of having people in your homes uh, in the Bay Area. And I know that everyone's busy and that um, you know, people are kind of uniquely busy and people have small homes because everything is so expensive. Uh, but brothers and sisters, this really is something that I think as a church we really need to grow in uh, is being hospitable to one another and having people within our homes uh, to, to really uh, push for uh, seeking out this blessing within the church. Now, as I mentioned, this is generally a foreign concept to, to, today. It's very difficult in this area. Um, people may be uh, either busy or embarrassed about the state of their homes or embarrassed about the size of their homes or um, there could be scheduling problems. Perhaps people are naturally intro introverted or they think there is a, uh, this is a lot of extra work to do and surely it is. And then beyond that, there can be the sheer force of habit that you know, for, for so long it's not happened and therefore it's difficult to get started. Uh, but brothers and sisters, this really is something that, is, that ought to be sought. It's one of the ways in which brotherly love can continue. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's an opportunity for you to, to uh, labor, to love those uh, who, are, uh, who are in the congregation as a brother or a sister. Now, I will just say as well that uh, I'm personally aware of, of several people who live uh, further away from the church and who would uh, like to attend the evening service or who do, and yet, yet attending can be inconvenient because of distance and transportation, that sort of thing. And one of the things that would really help in these situations is if there was a regular practice of people opening up their homes uh, on the Lord's Day. Uh, this is even probably the, the easiest way to build in a habit of hospitality would be to, to try to have someone over after the, a church service. It's very natural. You know, you're going to be coming back to the evening service anyway. So you invite someone over and invite them to spend uh, the afternoon uh, with you. Uh, and this, this, brothers and sisters, I think is, is really is something that we ought to uh, think about uh, doing. And if there are, you know, 
various sorts of, of excuses that you, you have with regard to it, uh, I would say really encourage you to see if those can be overcome. Really seek to see, is there, is there a way we can begin to have other people in our homes? And if it's, if it's difficult, I would say pray to God for the strength to get started. There is a great blessing with regard to hospitality. Uh, some have entertained even angels as they have shown hospitality to others. It was second, it's clearly from the text, clearly it was second hand. It was, it was second nature, second nature for Abraham to uh, bring in uh, people from the road and to show hospitality to them, to show hospitality to strangers in a way that was wise and godly and loving. Another great benefit of this is it sets a good example for, the, for children as they can see the importance of it. They can help you know, get the house ready for, for guests. They can see the, the, the need of serving guests uh, in the home. Uh, and I'll, I'll say this even further about others within the home. Uh, clearly, it's normal for most of the work in hospitality to fall to a wife, though it obviously doesn't have to be all the work. It should not be all the work. Um, so there is a, there is a, a certain kind of commitment that, that wives in particular need to make with regard to this work. Uh, but men, Men in the home are really the ones who are responsible for setting the direction and the leadership, taking the leadership and seeing that it actually happens. You'll notice that Abraham is quite diligent in all the things that he's doing. And so even though it's, it's normal for a, a woman to be preparing the meals and that sort of thing, notice Abraham is laboring the whole time and he's the one that, that's clearly made it, made it a normal procedure in the home for, for him to have uh, other people within his home. He's clearly made that a goal of his. And as the leader, he is, as the head of the house, he has uh, made that a, a normal practice. Uh, this, brothers and sisters, really would be beneficial for the whole church. And it is a way in which we can share one another's burdens. It's a way in which we can get to know one another better and uh, even be able to encourage one another to get to know one another so we know what, how to pray for others and how we can serve them. And so the scriptures say, with regard to, bro to brotherly love, the first exhortation is, uh, do not overlook hospitality. Now, the third thing that's said, or if you like, the, the second exhortation about how to let brotherly love continue, is to remember the prisoners. Remember those who are uh, prisoners as if chained with them. Now, the author is not speaking about prisoners in general. He's not speaking about um, just anyone who's been arrested for any reason. This exhortation is, is, I think, pretty clearly linked back to the exhortation that's given towards the end of chapter 10, where there are those who had been mistreated and put in prison for the sake of the gospel. And that's really what, what the author is speaking about. There are those who have been persecuted for the sake of the faith, and that persecution has led them to be arrested and to, put, and to be put in prison. Now, one of the things that, that can happen with regard to persecution is that when, when someone is persecuted for their faith, there is, there is a social cost to identifying with that person. With, with imprisonment, it, it goes like this. Uh, if you identify with the prisoner, uh, you very well may be put in prison too because you're doing the same things, which is simply living a godly life and, and believing in God. And so, there are, there, so Paul is always exhorting people not to be ashamed of his chains. Don't don't dissociate from me because I'm suffering for the sake of the gospel. And now, the reason I, I explain that is because today, persecution does not look like being in prison for your faith. It does look like social ostracism, though. There is the same cost to uh, identifying with someone who has been 
labeled with whatever label the world gives you for the sake of your faith. The, and, and the temptation is to, say, is to say something like this, you know, I believe in Jesus, but you know, I don't condone the kinds of things that this person does who's been called a bigot or a racist or whatever else, or a homophobe or a transphobe or whatever. And so there's a way where you're trying to thread the needle where you're saying, I can still have my faith in Jesus, but I'm going to avoid the insults that, that, that this other faithful Christian has received upon himself. That's, that's the same kind of social cost that the author is speaking about in, uh, in verse 3. What, what we are called to do, though, is to suffer along with those who are being persecuted as, we, as if we ourselves are suffering the same persecution. We are to identify with them in their persecution. That's really what the author is speaking about in verse 3. Notice the way he says it. You should remember the prisoners as if chained with them, since you yourselves are in the body also. The, the, the idea is that, is that there is a real fellowship with those who are suffering for the sake of the gospel. You are, if, if they are suffering in a particular way, and you are not, the only real difference is just the providence of the Lord, of, of them being targeted or whatever, and you not being to this point. But the requirement is if you are suffering, suffer well. If you are not particularly suffering, be willing to identify with those who are so suffering. And explained in this way, you can easily see the, the connection between this and the uh, perseverance of the church, which is the subject of the entire letter. Remember this in chapter 10. This is, this is the thing that was going on. There were people who were being persecuted. And if the church begins to fragment by, by dissociating themselves members in the church dissociating themselves with those who are suffering, then that is going to lead to the upsetting of the faith of some. It's going to lead to others not being able to endure the persecution as they ought. And it's going to, to, to lead to the decline of the church. What the author is saying here is, if you are to let brotherly love continue, one of the things that is absolutely required is, is that when others suffer for the sake of the gospel, that you be willing to suffer with them. And the, the, the basic thing is to uh, not dissociate with them. That's the most foundational thing. I am willing to identify with this person, come what may. That's what the author here is speaking about in verse 3, and that's the way in which we continue to let brotherly love continue, and that's the way in which we show that we are, in fact, we, we are, in fact, uh, members one of another. Uh, we are, in fact, brothers and sisters. We don't, we don't dissociate ourselves from our brothers and sisters because they themselves are suffering. Now, in verse 4, we have the instruction with regard to uh, to, the, to marriage. So marriage is to be honorable and the bed undefiled. So the marriage bed undefiled. Uh, this is then contrasted with the fornicators and adulterers who will be judged uh, by God. Now, uh, notice that so there's, there's really, um, in this description, there are, there's a positive element and a negative element. So that is marriage is good, fornication and adultery are bad. And, and even, even the, the conjugal union within marriage, particularly the marriage bed is to be held, uh, to, is to be undefiled. Now, I had mentioned in a, in a sermon uh, last week that there, is, uh, that there is often this dichotomy. It's very difficult to get right in the world today. There's, there's, there are, are many who go soft on sexual sins. So they'll, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll capitulate and compromise with the world. So they'd be unwilling to say that fornicators and adulterers are going to be judged by God, which is what the author says here. And then there's also sometimes the temptation not to hold marriage in honor or the, or to see the conjugal union as good in and of itself. 
So those are the, the, the two kinds of options, the, the two kinds of things that, that can sometimes happen. So for instance, an example this would be in Catholicism, there's a, there's a prohibition against priests marrying. So there you have marriages not being held in honor, though in general Catholics will uh, condemn the sexual sins that we see all over the world. So there is, there is the, you have the one but not the other. In the world today, you have uh, marriage not being respected at all, but then also more, more predominantly, the most predominant thing is, is that uh, every kind of sexual sin is, is permitted and even celebrated. What the author here is saying is that there is a sense in which these two things are to be held in contrast. Uh, marriage is to be honored. The, the conjugal union is to be held in honor. It's not to be defiled. And then also, those who are fornicators and adulterers, we have to recognize they themselves will be judged by God. That, that's, the, that's the balance that we are to have. Now, with regard to the, the negative element, fornicators and adulterers, uh, you, you have here really a shorthand way to describe every sexual sin. So fornication being those sins committed by those who are not married, adultery being those sins that are committed by those who are married. Can only be either married or not married, and therefore um, this covers every sexual sin. And the point that the author is making, particularly uh, in, uh, in verse 4, is that those who commit such sins will be judged by God. God will judge them. And this is the, this is the message that is, is very unpopular with the world today, and yet it is, uh, it is, in fact, quite true. We are to remember, brothers and sisters, that we've been seeing in the book of Proverbs, that sexual sins are particularly entangling. They are they are particularly entangling. They, they will destroy lives. And we, we are to be about the business of destroying those sins. And if we are not about the business of destroying those sins, the warning of the scriptures is, is that God will destroy us. There will, be a, there will be a judgment. God will judge those who are fornicators or adulterers. We are to put those sins to death. Now, as I speak about this, I, I know that these sins being entangling um, does not mean that there is no forgiveness for these sins. If you repent of your sins, it, there is forgiveness for repentance for every sin. Every sin that you repent of, you will be forgiven of. But you are to put these sins to death. These sins are to be put to death. They are, they are not to be tolerated. When you see them in your heart, you are to get rid of them. You are to plead with God to do away with them. Uh, now, the last thing that's said, then, is you are not to be greedy. Last, last exhortation has to do with covetousness. Rather, you, to be, you are to be content with what you have. Now, these two things uh, very clearly go together. Um, do not be covetous, but rather be content. So if you're, if you're covetous, you're not content. If you're content, you're not going to be covetous. These things, things are clearly, uh, they're clearly held as opposites. Uh, now, um, with regard to these particular sins, um, it's important to see again how these things are related to the exhortation to let brotherly love continue. Uh, it's important to know, brothers and sisters, that if you are covetous of a brother or a sister, that, that is, there's no way to have brotherly love continue if there is coveting in your heart. One, one good test with regard to this is um, the test given in, in Romans chapter 12, the exhortation that Paul gives, you are to rejoice with those who rejoice, you are to weep with those who weep, you are to mourn with those who mourn. And this is a, this is a phenomenal test of whether or not there is actually coveting or envy in your heart. When you hear that a good thing happens to another Christian, another member of this congregation, is the natural response of your heart to rejoice with that person. 
When you hear that a bad thing happens to another person in this congregation, is the natural response of your heart to mourn. Now, I am not saying that when you hear of something good happening, that you seek to rejoice outwardly with that person. Now, you need to rejoice outwardly. But what I'm asking is, you, you examine your heart. Is there a natural response of joy in the heart when you hear that something good happens to another person? This is the, re this, this is the reason why it's so connected with, brother, with brotherly love. It shows that your heart is connected with the other person, that you really do count them as a brother or sister, such that a good thing happens to them, there's rejoicing. A bad thing happens to them, there is mourning. Or to ask it a different way, uh, let's say that you are going through a very difficult time and uh, you then hear that something good happens to someone in this congregation. It, does that good news, does that alleviate in some way the difficulty that you are going through? Does it alleviate your sadness and your circumstances? Or does it feel like it's a piling on because good things are happening to them but not to you? Uh, God has given us the, the good things in other Christians to be a, an encouragement to us in our lives because we are all to rejoice with those who rejoice. If, if things are difficult for you, but they're good for another person, you at least have one reason to celebrate. You at least have one reason to rejoice. And it is that natural rejoicing when things go well for another person that shows that in your heart you are not coveting. You, you, you are perfectly content with what God has given to you, and you are seeking the good of another person such that uh, you can rejoice even when things are going poorly for you. It's, it's natural and good for you to rejoice when things are going uh, poorly for you, when you hear of a good thing happening to another person. This, brothers and sisters, is humility. This is true focus on others, and this is what true contentment is. Now, you'll notice with regard to this last exhortation that there is a reason that's given the second part of, of uh, verse 5 and even into uh, verse 6, uh, two quotations from Scripture. He himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake, forsake you, so we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? So, so here the idea is, is that uh, God has given this promise, and this becomes the, the, and it's taken from multiple places in the Old Testament, as the author to the Hebrews is always quoting Scripture. Um, and this becomes the foundation for not coveting. So the, so the idea is that there is, I've given you a test for how you can know whether or not you are coveting. Why are you not to covet? What, what's the theological basis for it? The answer is because you know that God's with you. You know this in the gospel. Uh, God gives to you exactly what you need as your wise God. And he's always going to be with you. Therefore, there's no need to covet what, what other, another person may have. God may give to this person or take away from that person. But he gives or withholds from you in accordance with his love for you. And he's always promised to be with you. And therefore, the answer is, is in any circumstance, the Lord is my help. What can man do to me? It doesn't matter what comes my way. I'm not going to covet because I know that God is with me. Now, this connection between covetousness and your relationship to God is the reason why in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in two places speaks about um, covetousness actually being idolatry. Uh, the reason is because if you are coveting another person, you are not trusting in God, being content with what he has given you, not recognizing God as your God, as the one who will be with you. And if he's with you, then you have no need to be envious of others. 
If you're envious of others, then that means that you're not fully trusting that God is, going, uh, that God is with you and, and for you, which means then that there is not a true worship of God as there ought to be, which means there is idolatry. So there's this connection that the Apostle Paul has drawn in two places in the New Testament, in Ephesians and Colossians, where he says that covetousness is idolatry. And this is exactly the, 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 the connection that the author of the Hebrews is making. Do not covet because God is with you. If God's with you, what else do you need? There's no, there's no need. Simply rejoice with those whom God has, has seen fit to bless. Remember that you, you are in this together with them, that the, the purpose of the church is, and, and your purpose even within the church, is to encourage the brothers and sisters to make sure that all of us make it. And so if there is a blessing that God's given to another person, then that's a, a great reason to rejoice because the goal is that nobody fails to reach that last day to reach the promise. And therefore, brothers and sisters, we rejoice with those who rejoice. The point is, is that when we think about the good of the church, the health of the church as a whole, when we think about the church continuing in the faith and laboring in the face of great persecution, these are the things that are needed. We must all contend for the faith together. If you were to ask, what can I do to contend for the faith and to encourage my brothers and sisters to do that? The answer is given here. This is the reason why this, this passage is, is very much connected to the rest of the, of, of the letter. Uh, you are to let brotherly love continue. You are to be hospitable. You are to remember those who are persecuted and associate with them. Don't be ashamed of them. You are to keep marriage honorable. You are to oppose all kinds of sexual sins. You are not to be greedy or covetous. These are the ways in which you labor for the faith of all, in which you can encourage your brothers and sisters uh, such that the kingdom of God advances. These are the things that you are to do. And so as we think about all of the challenges that are facing the church and the need to persevere, brothers and sisters, may it be that God would grant you the grace to live a life that is holy before him, that this would be evident by the way in which you treat others within the congregation, that all these things would be characteristic of you, that we might all attain to that goal on the last day. That is my prayer for you. And uh, I do pray very earnestly that God would grant that not one of us would be missing on that last day. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we see over and over again in the scriptures, over and over again, the exhortations to uh, love one another. That is by this that all men will know that, that we are your disciples by the love with, with which we have one for another, particularly speaking of the love that Christians have for other Christians. Lord, uh, we see within the church, because of our own sins, that there is a, a temptation to uh, disunity. There's a temptation towards uh, bitterness and uh, sins. And Lord, we see that this causes problems in the church. It doesn't just uh, cause problems in the church as, uh, in terms of interpersonal relationships, but even, Lord, it, it, hurts, it hurts faith. It hurts people's faith. Uh, Lord, please, we do pray, pour out your spirit and knit us together in love that, uh, that we might be a healthy church with all growing, with all growing in grace, O oh Lord. For, Lord, you do ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. If you've benefited from this ministry and want to know of ways you can help or support it, we'd like to make you aware of our new capital campaign to build a new building. 
God has recently blessed us with growth here at New Covenant. Over the years, our church has been small. It's gone up and down, but overall things have been tight financially and the church has been small. Now, by the grace of God, we are growing. We believe it wise in light of this to think about building a new building to facilitate even more growth. Our current building only seats 72. We cannot fit any more seats, and if we were to fill every single one, every Lord's Day we would have no more than 72. The plans for our new building would more than double the capacity and enable us to grow to a point where we can be stable financially and even be able to help other churches. One of the things that we want to, to be is a church that is able to look beyond itself for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom of God. We believe that this new building can help us get there. And so we are praying that God would provide for us the funds needed to build a new building, that we would grow to fill it, and that one day we would even be able to plant a church ourselves. As you know, doing ministry here in the Bay Area, this is a very dark place. Uh, there's a great need for the light of the gospel to shine, particularly in this place through the preaching of the word. And so if you want to support us and to, to support our efforts to see this new building built, please consider giving a financial gift to this end. You can give by sending us a check with building fund in the memo line. Our address can be found on our website. You can also give by Zelle by sending the money to nc.opcssf.treasurer at gmail.com with building fund in the memo line. May God bless you with a greater knowledge of his word and zeal for his name.